We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing calls for the resumption of direct ferry links from Jingmen and Matsu to China. Vice President Lai Qingde registering as a candidate for the DPP's chairperson election amid talks that it's part of his grand plan for 2024. The new Taipei City Police Department being hit by criticism and praise over the wearing of Santa hats at a Christmas-themed event. The operator of the Kaohsiung light rail system taking a high-tech approach to bringing an end to accidents and a look at the local pro basketball league's fixation with signing former NBA players. But we'll begin this week with President Su Jung Chang on Sunday saying that Taiwan could file a complaint with the World Trade Organization after learning that China has blocked imports of dozens of alcoholic and other beverage products from Taiwan. That import ban came only two days after Beijing suspended imports of several Taiwanese seafood products. Now, according to the Premier, China is violating WTO norms by making up its own rules meddling in trade through administrative means and discriminating against Taiwan. Now, Finance Minister Su Jian Rong on Monday said Taiwan sells about 3.7 billion NT in beer and liquor to China annually. But the suspension of the imports and some of the shipments is not expected to cost exporters more than 1 billion NT. Now, that ban has on alcohol has apparently affected 11 out of 28 beer and distillery products and it covers products made by some of Taiwan's leading suppliers including the Taiwan Tobacco and Liquor Corporation, King Car Food Industrial and Jingmen Gaoliang Liquor. Now China said that the shipment's ban is related to new customs registration systems which took effect on January the 1st of this year. And Economics Minister Wang Meihua was busy telling reporters that although many countries have been critical of the new Chinese customs registration system. Beijing has chosen to target Taiwanese exporters before those of other countries. And on Thursday of this week, the Council of Agriculture said that Taiwanese exporters are being unfairly inconvenienced by China's rejection of shipments that do not adhere to strictly enforced yet as unclear customs regulations. Now, according to the Council's Department of International Affairs, Beijing is treating Taiwanese exporters with undue harshness and practising double standards by giving non-Taiwanese exporters a more lenient deadline to meet the new regulations. Now, the government has said that it will use sales promotions, financing and professional training programmes to help companies affected by the China ban, such as the Bureau of Foreign Trade's Taiwan Global Food Initiative. That programme was launched in August and was designed to help local food and beverage companies gain access to foreign markets through seller-buyer matching and by facilitating their attendance at international food exhibitions. Now, the Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday of this week finally came out and clarified the suspension on imports of seafood, alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages and also pastries from Taiwan, saying it was because local exporters have failed to disclose the ingredients of such products as required. And the FDA had stressed that regardless of which category of exported goods are placed under, all exports from Taiwan are required to be labelled with ingredients shown in percentages. However, that's offended some local bakeries here who are refusing to comply. And the Association of Bakeries said, well, some of them find it too 
troublesome to list all the ingredients in percentages, while other members of the Bakeries Association say that such information is a trade secret. So, Brian, of course, not the first time that China has banned goods, but this one seems to be a lot clearer. Obviously, it started a week out, it was a bit unclear, but then officials came on and said, well, you know, there are new regulations, we should possibly adhere to them. Yeah, so China claims that these regulations were announced in April of last year and began to be implemented in January. And so there's a timeline that China claims that this is following. Uh, but then most companies say they will not actually be applying. That 1,800 of the around uh, 2,400 companies that are affected say they won't actually be applying. And so you have the shift. It's interesting because there has been the pattern of China blocking um, exports from Taiwan from a number of goods, including pineapple to grouper uh, to even blocking the uh, sand sent, being sent to Taiwan and uh, so forth. But then in this case, it's slightly different because in the past, when it was with food products primarily, the claim was that this was due to food safety concerns. This time around, it's about labeling. And so this also occurred in August around the timeline of the Pelosi visit, shortly before the Pelosi visit, uh, with 100 or so Taiwanese goods also blocked from export to China, with also the claim then that the uh, regulations for labeling were not followed, and so then they would be not allowed to be sent over. And this was also accused of being politically motivated. And Michael, do you think this, this, it seems to become a bit clearer, this one, though? It's not like there was some bugs in the lettuce or the pineapples. There was like, you didn't fill the form in properly. Uh, yeah, okay, but I wonder if Brian would agree with me when I say that uh, even if it's not political, it is political. I don't know if you know what I mean. It's, it's, these sort of things, uh, it really doesn't matter. The end result is that it results in a, a political confrontation. And when you, you say more clear, like, okay, great, when you're talking about perhaps um, uh, pineapple cakes, but the, the ingredients of, of beer or gaoliang, that, that doesn't quite make sense. Um, it seems to me, and I think a lot of people are going to feel this way, whether it is accurate or not, that these claims of labeling or safety or correct names are basically just more of that boa constrictor slow tightening that China is um, engaged in and has been engaged in for quite a while now and probably will continue to engage in. So I've noticed, I think many other people have as well, that China's taken a interesting page perhaps out of America, whereas before America would say things like, you know, we have laws where we recognize the Taiwan Relations Act and uh, it's the law, it's the law. Now China's starting to do a lot of that as well, saying, well, it's the law, it's the law, there's nothing we can do about it. So uh, I, I personally think that this is just uh, going to continue, and there will be many excuses. Some of them will perhaps sound reasonable, but in the end, I do think that there is a, a, a pattern here and a strategy here. And Michael, I mean, the bakeries, they're concerned about listing their ingredients in percentages because they're, you know, obviously they're worried that maybe companies in China will try to copy their products. That's an argument that uh, I really am not qualified to talk about because I just don't know uh, how or if that would be possible, uh, the, the, those things. But every country around the world requires you to have some sort of ingredient list, and um, it does, just doesn't make sense to me why China would need something more than what is already legally required by you know any other, say, Europe or America for these sort of things. So if the Taiwan companies are following the same standard that they would be if they were exporting to the UK, then why doesn't it work for China? Yeah, I think it is primarily politically motivated. I mean, you look at the timeline for some of the past bans, uh, they are 
deliberately engineered for certain times. For example, with pineapple, that was right before the harvest season. That was deliberate so that these pineapples would not have anywhere to go. Uh, this time around, for example, um, it's maybe the timing. There's the it follows the pattern that was set in August then of this new angle of attack going after labeling and so forth. Uh, but then also one of the reasons why these companies are being disqualified is saying that their licensing is not correct uh, regarding company registration, merchandise registration, or the labeling of the products. Uh, and some of these companies, their registration is actually set to expire only in 2025 or 2026, but now suddenly they're experiencing trouble. And so there is this. Uh, it's also quite interesting to note the pattern of uh, that China is, is going for, uh, targeting high-profile, uh, often high-end Taiwan products that are recognizable. And so alcohol is one of them. Taiwan beer, of course, I mean, that is distinctive. Demon Gaoliang is also quite well-known. Uh, for example, Cavalon is perhaps also affected. King Car is one of the companies that is, is uh, targeted. And so these are oftentimes high-profile products. Uh, pineapple is also one of them. There are a lot of hopes placed on the pineapple market in the past, and so too with Grouper. Uh, and so that, uh, it seems quite deliberate there. And there's also a continuing drumbeat across the, the world when it comes to online sales. There's uh, many a website now where you are forced, you simply do not have any other option if you want to buy this particular thing, to locate yourself as Taiwan province of China. Also, just uh, on the 13th of uh, December, there was the report that came out about how Disney Plus uh, subtitles, now when Taiwan is mentioned, is uh, Taiwan, comma, China. So it, it seems pretty clear that they, they have a, a plan in mind of how they can just slowly sort of constrict these things and make it more and more difficult and make it to the point where if you want to do business or you want to be any, in any way associated with the China market, you kind of are going to have to sell out uh, identity issues. And Brian, of course, the government have said that it's going to help companies affected by following programs where they help them export their products to other countries. But of course, this comes with a price because of course it costs money to do this. Yeah, that's right. And so what's also a pattern, and I think uh, some industry experts are quite concerned about this, is that now when there are bans that come from China, the demand from industry is for the government to bail them out. And so there are questions then if this is, for example, interfering in market mechanisms. China is perhaps already a politically risky market, but then when something happens, then the call is on the government, the onus on the government to create a new market, develop a new market, or do something to, to help out. And so this is taking the form of providing trainings, uh, advertising campaigns, seeking new markets, uh, but also rallying up nationalism effectively, calling on the domestic public to purchase this good out of patriotism uh, because it is banned by China. So you see that with pineapple or grouper. You have this used to try to pivot to countries that are supportive of Taiwan in some ways, such as Japan, with a framing of, let's say, freedom pineapple or freedom grouper, or in this case, freedom beer, and so forth. But then this will not work for all products, and it's also becoming a pattern. And I think perhaps the public will wear thin, uh, wear, wear, become tired of, of that. The government is always trying to push them to go for these products. I uh, was happy to see a market watch report on global sales of Gaoliang. Uh, <laughs> surprised to note that there's many, many countries that I would not have expected that uh, are importing. And uh, according to this report, uh, the company is set for good increases over the, the next five or six years, uh, even excluding China. So uh, some good news, at least on that front. But, Michael, do you think the government should be bailing these companies out or maybe these companies should just diversify their export markets on their own? I share Brian's concern about the, the, the possibility of it becoming sort of a, a crutch, but um, at the same time, I also feel the pain of, like, say, a pineapple farmer who suddenly is um, looking at huge deficits in their income. So 
it's a it's a complicated question, and I think sometimes we are going to need at least a temporary government assistance as a transition, for example. But uh, in in the case of uh, Taiwan Beer or Gaoliang, for example, they should be fine figuring this out on their own, and uh, I don't think we need to patriotically drink any more Gaoliang than uh, we usually do. <laughs> Moving on now, albeit not away from China, and Central Epidemic Command sent ahead Victor Wong on Tuesday told reporters that the resumption of direct ferry links between Jingmen and Matsu to Xiamen in China would depend on the coronavirus situation in China. Now, that statement came after KMT lawmaker Jessica Chen travelled to Xiamen earlier this week to discuss the possibility of reopening the direct links with Chinese officials. Now, according to the Epidemic Command sent ahead, coronavirus outbreaks in China are expected to rise after the lunar New Year holidays and his office is treating the matter as an evolving situation. Now both the presidential office and the cabinet are also warning that any moves to lift border controls for passengers arriving through China will be first evaluated based on the coronavirus situation there. However outgoing Jingmen County Magistrate Yang Jun Wu said that he's seeking to reopen the ferry links for humanitarian purposes and family visits on a case-by-case basis in the initial stage before gradually moving towards a full resumption of the said ferry services. Now, National Security Council Secretary General Wellington Gu on Thursday said the government will make a final decision on whether to reopen the direct ferry services from the outlying islands to China before the Lunar New Year. And according to Gu, the government is looking forward to the gradual resumption of healthy and orderly cross-strait people-to-people exchanges. So, Brian, of course, the ferry links have been closed basically since the coronavirus pandemic started, but of course that's affected people who live on Jingmen and Matsu, maybe not people who live on one proper but i mean they're waiting for the coronavirus situation they're going to wait some more and then they're going to wait to the lunar new year yeah that's right and so it's kind of interesting conundrum because cases are set to go up in china and this will be incredibly massive uh, because of the relaxation of covid zero and because of the fact that china did not use the time bought by covid zero to build up metal capacity and so there's talk of even one million cases over the winter uh, two million cases going forward and even up to fifty thousand per day and so it's going to be brutal for China going forward, but we're not seeing that now, or we are actually starting to see that with a lot of reports of medical capacity being stressed and uh, inability to kind of go through the usual channels for dealing with COVID. Um, but news reports of that are now getting out of China slowly. And I think it'll trickle to Taiwan. There'll be more perception of that here. But in the meantime, that's something that the Pan Blue Camp has called for a while. The KMT has called for the assumption of the direct links to China from Demon and Matsu uh, for tourism, uh, for trade, just visiting family and relatives and so forth. But there's also been the long-standing concerns about Demon, Matsu, and other outlying islands of not having enough medical resources to deal with outbreaks. And so that's going to be a kind of interesting question going forward then. And Michael, do you think the government will keep pushing this back as far as they can push it before they really have to say, OK? Yeah, probably. My guess is that they will reopen it before the Lunar New Year because um, it's both uh, something that most people in that area want. It's politically a, a, a good idea. But uh, did you see that uh, one of the major concerns that they were citing, at least uh, over the last couple of days, was that perhaps people coming over from China would uh, be buying up too much uh, COVID medication and various other medical supplies in Jinmen and Mazu. So that was an interesting element that uh, I hadn't thought of before. But uh, yes, as Brian noted, it looks like they're in for a huge COVID explosion. So um, perhaps that's uh, another reason why it's, it's going to take a little while. And Brian Michael there was talking about the Food and Drug Administration saying that it's basically monitoring slight growths in market demand for the fever suppressants. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting, though, because uh, there's been this current concern regarding, for example, uh, the, for example, Chinese people coming over to Hong Kong and buying baby formula, for example, and then going back over and that leading to loss of supplies. And so it's a question if that would occur, actually, in outlying islands of Taiwan. It, it'd be interesting, actually, because that might percept- change perceptions of China there uh, in terms of, for example, people scrambling over medication. This will takes place at a time, for example, in which the Chinese government is trying to promote traditional Chinese medicine as a cure-all to COVID. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting in that respect because the Thai administration is also trying to promote traditional Chinese medicine as dealing with COVID in that sense. And so there's kind of some overlap in, in this odd way, but uh, I guess it'll be seen if that actually leads to uh, people coming over and buying supplies. I mean, you have the kind of limits maybe perhaps being imposed on that or quotas for purchase. It's too bad that Jimin and Mazu don't grow peaches. I don't know if you saw that uh, uh, peaches <laughs> in China are, are flying off the shelves, canned peaches, because... The word for peach in Chinese is tao, so like uh, to escape from the disease. Right. And Michael, I mean, do you think possibly Chinese people could use the ferry services to maybe get jabs for the coronavirus here? Hmm. That would seem difficult. I mean, uh, I guess if you pay uh, enough money to somebody, there's always the possibility of getting that. But for the most part, you would uh, need the Jembao card, but it's not out of the question. Or could they come and pay for on Brian? I mean, it'd, be, it'd be quite interesting. Uh, that'd, that'd be quite interesting possibility going forward. I mean, there is medical tourism from China in some cases. I mean, now as we normalize travel, perhaps there will be some version of that for COVID. I mean, that, that'd be an interesting possibility. And moving on now, and Vice President Lai Ching-de registered his candidacy for the DPP's chairperson election on Wednesday of this week. Lai registered, though, through a proxy as he was following self-health monitoring regulations after contracting the coronavirus last week. Now, former Culture Minister Zhang Li-chun completed Lai's candidacy application after paying their 1.5 million NT registration fee at the DPP's headquarters in Taipei on his behalf. Now, Lai declared his candidacy for the DPP's chop job via social media on December the 8th, saying he decided to run after consultations with the party and he'd informed President Tsai Ing-wen of his decision. Now, speaking to reporters after filing Lai's candidacy registration papers, the former culture minister said the vice president's motivation to run for the DPP chair is to tackle the challenges faced by the party following losses in the recent local elections. And according to Lai, via Zhang, if elected, he will lead the DPP to win back voters' trust by improving connections between the party and society by gathering a wide range of talent to innovate and drive progress for the country. Now, needless to say, Lai's registration for the DPP's top job has sparked immediate speculation that it's part of his build-up for the 2024 presidential election. Now, he's also, according to one newspaper here this week, been linked to running for the 2024 presidential election with the former culture minister as his running mate. However, she has denied that and the vice president has not talked about it. Now, the DPP chair election is slated to take place on January the 15th of next year and the new chair will serve until May the 20th of 2024 and the DPP has said it hopes to announce the new chairman on or the chairperson I should say on January the 18th so Brian Leichinger William Lai registering there no big surprise but I mean is it part of his grand plan for 2024 yeah, I think that seems likely uh, because of the fact that sometimes the party chair is also the candidate. 
Uh, and so I think what is statement is who throws their hat into the ring or doesn't. Uh, Zhen Wenzhan, the Taran mayor, former Taran mayor, outgoing Taran mayor, says that he will not actually do so. And he was perceived as one of the larger challengers to, Tsai in the, uh, to lie in the past as Tsai's preferred candidate. And uh, recently with the losses uh, in Taran, the failure of his successors to hold on to Taran, uh, but also the invalidation of his master's degree on a plagiarism scandal, it looks like his chances are receding. And so he is actually backed lie this time. That seems to suggest that he will not actually throw his hat into the race for running for the presidential candidate in that sense, because it's almost that the party chair election is a proxy election for the next presidential candidate in that sense. Yes. And Michael, of course, the chair, per, of course, in Taiwan, it's traditional that the party chair runs for president. But I mean... Right. <laughs> Right, it's uh, pretty much a, a no-brainer. I would be uh, pretty much utterly shocked if he were to not win this uh, chairperson election. And it's uh, interesting how Brian noted that it looks like pretty much anyone who had a, even a, a, a small chance of, of perhaps uh, taking him on in a primary, it doesn't look uh, very likely now. So he, his presumptive heir or um, candidate seems to be pretty solidly baked in at this point. Of course, uh, things can change. But uh, you were also bringing up the, the, the vice presidential slot, and I think that's interesting. And we're going to have to pay attention and keep an eye on that as we move forward. Because as many people people know, William Lai has made statements in the past that um, things such as he's a, a, a fighter for Taiwan independence and, and other political statements that are, uh, you know, very uh, contentious, uh, at least from China's perspective. And uh, they will be used against him by the opposition to say that he's a person who's going to lead Taiwan towards a path of war or conflict with China and da-da-da. So he's going to have to think very carefully about who he does pick as a vice presidential nominee. And it's going to have to be, I would say, someone who is either in the business world or uh, just very less political than he is. I don't think it will be the former culture minister, but I'm very interested to see uh, how this will evolve. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, a name floated as Xiaobi Kim sometimes, for her, possibly for his vice, uh, probably because of the fact that she was representative of the U.S. and therefore can perhaps pacify the U.S. in that sense, regarding concerns about Lai's pro-independence statements. I mean, Lai has also tried to walk this back, claiming it's possible to love both Taiwan and China in a kind of comments that drew controversy, but he is still perceived as more pro-independence, and these are his backers in the DPP, the traditionally pro-independence camp and the kind of deeper green sometimes. Uh, but it'd be interesting. I mean, for example, I think Zheng is floated as a name because she is perceived as closer to Tsai, who does not seem to be the biggest fan of Lai because of the fact that he tried to challenge her before 2020. Exactly. Yeah, and so she is more trusted by Tsai, and so she can then accommodate her faction within the party. That seems to be why that name has come up. Unfortunately, the losses that you noted, uh, and especially the the plagiarism with both the former mayor of Xingzhou and then the Zemantan in, in Taoyuan, it, it really has sort of kneecapped uh, President Tsai because she had a good deal to say about who would be the next person previous to this, but she sort of lost her main lieutenants in this fight, and uh, as I see it, it's, uh, it's kind of Lai's party now. And Brian, I mean, do you think if Lai goes unchallenged in this election, do you think it, look, it looks pretty pathetic for the party? 
That's possible. But also, it is a question, I think, in terms of the uh, both parties, actually, as their presidential candidate, because I think both are concerned about infighting, possibly leading to loss of support for that presidential candidate. Uh, I mean, the KMT has a number of possibilities. I mean, uh, for example, Hoyo is the front runner. The Australian's name has come up. Eric Chu is rumored to have ambitions to run. Then outside the party, you have Terry Goh. Uh, you also have Hangul Wei, perhaps, wanting to throw his hat into the race. And then the DPP, if there's a question then, I mean, if there was an infighting between Zhou Wenzhan and William Lai, for example, and other possibilities floated were, uh, for example, running Ling Jialong again, or Chen Jianren, the former vice president, uh, those three seem to be preferred by Tsai over Lai. Uh, I mean, then that also leads to possibly of a divided vote. And so I think both parties are contemplating this possibility. It's a question of which party can unite. And of course, there was a headline in one of the Chinese papers this week by a profound statement by Eric Ju saying he will pick the strongest candidate for 2024. <laughs> yeah, he's been saying Smart that for move. a while. <laughs> and talked about being a kingmaker. I, I like when they uh, use that term. <laughs> anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week Now, and the new Taipei City Police Department this week was busy defending its decision to ask some of its officers who were on duty at the Christmas land event in the Banqiao district to wear Santa hats. Now, the police department issued a statement saying the decision was aimed at increasing the officers' visibility. Now, officials say of the roughly 570 officers deployed at the event, only 100 of them were actually asked to wear the Santa hats. Now, those statements came after the police department received criticism over the said Santa hats with some arguing that the costumes harm the dignity of the police force and turn them into backup performance at the Christmas Land concert. Others, however, quite enjoyed seeing members of the local constabulary wearing the seasonal headgear, arguing that the hats provided, well, they provided a big, big celebration. They added to the celebration and the seasonal glee. They proved a big hit with concert goers and many people asked to have their pictures taken with the police officers looking like Santa. Now, new Taipei City Mayor Ho Yoi, who of course is a former police officer and also the former head of the National Police Agency, dismissed the criticism very quickly, saying the hats helped the officers blend into their surroundings and added a touch of warmth as they went about their duties, Michael. <laughs> Uh, so the first argument that they made was that uh, it helps them to um, stand out. But then another report said that they did it deliberately to help them blend in so that they could uh, help people or uh, see crimes occurring or whatever. But in any case, it really doesn't matter why they did it. It's just an absolute ridiculous story that anyone would complain about this at all and that they would uh, link dignity to wearing a Christmas hat at a Christmas event uh, is just utterly absurd. If you want to deal with dignity in Taiwanese police officers, then we need to work on things like uh, training for taking down suspects um, better. We need to work on, uh, in my city, for example, not having the police drive by people uh, committing clear uh, lawless acts or uh, traffic infractions. That's where the police are losing their dignity, not when they put on a Santa hat. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely the case. And uh, what's really funny to me is that it's part of political culture in Taiwan just to dress up. And so I'm sure you can find photos of Hoyoi or other Taiwanese politicians, people in the highest office, playing dress up and dress up as Halloween uh, for Halloween, for example, in various costumes or for Christmas and, and so forth. And so this kind of claim about the place is a bit strange. And often, actually, this, these claims that go around about the dignity of the place are quite 
uh, post-authoritarian or authoritarian in the sense that there's this nostalgia for when things are orderly and there is not all this dress up or trying to play cute for the public and, and that kind of thing. Uh, it, it's just very bizarre in that sense uh, that this actually that the whole people are reacting this way. And of course, in Taipei, bus drivers wear hats at Christmas time. They come. Some of the bus drivers dress up as Santa at Christmas time. Yeah, and so one of those things is just having fun. But some people apparently cannot do that. Yeah, we have down here, and I'm sure uh, it's up there as well. But we get these uh, cops on horseback, and they go around to parks on the weekend for really no other reason than just to let children come over and take pictures with them. And it's like a, an outreach program. And as you noted, on Halloween, they dressed up their horses and themselves. And uh, I, I just don't see a problem here. And in some news from Kaohsiung now, because we have Michael on the phone from that fair city. Now, the Kaohsiung light rail system has been plagued, and I use that word, as it's how some local media have described the issue by traffic accidents in recent months, as vehicles apparently keep intruding on the tracks. Now, city transport officials say there have been 13 such incidents so far this year, and most of them were caused by drivers making illegal turns. And go figure there, I guess. However, the Kaohsiung city government is taking the matter seriously and developing tech-based systems to stop the accidents involving both vehicles and pedestrians. Now, city officials on Wednesday of this week announced that Kaohsiung's Transportation Bureau is working with the National Development Council and Zhanghua Telecom to employ 5G and artificial intelligence of things-based tech to predict and stop track incursions. Now, the tech apparently uses light detection and ranging to learn about traffic patterns near the light rail system and it can also trigger alerts when it learns what's happening around it. Now, apparently a trial project is currently in use at several of what officials are describing as the most troublesome intersections on the light rail route, Michael. Right, so it is a problem. Uh, as you noted, the 13th incident happened uh, just a, a couple days ago, and we had a death on December 9th, uh, sadly, uh, but again, <laughs> none of these uh, uh, crashes are due to the tram suddenly making a turn. Um, it was 8 o'clock in the morning. A 59-year-old man did not follow the no-turn-on-red rule and then also did not follow the sign or notice the sign that uh, is very clear in front of uh, these intersections. Even my nine-year-old daughter, when we were driving just the other day, she was able to uh, see it very clearly, and she pointed out, oh, look, there's the... So it's not like these are really difficult to see, or uh, I will, however, say there are a couple of intersections in Kaohsiung where the tram will cross over like a uh, three-way road, and it's probably not the best design because it's confusing. You're not sure which one, but right now they have... Um, volunteer officers standing at pretty much every one of these intersections and the trams stop when the red lights stop they they don't it's not like you you have to be some sort of psychic to understand how they work they it's it's very clear so it remains a problem and one of the issues that i've heard people say is oh there's drivers that are coming in from other cities that are unfamiliar with how the system works and that may be the case although i don't have any evidence for it but i also think about how you know i lived in taipei for over a decade and when i first got there and started driving in the city there were many different things that you had to learn to figure out such as how to make a a turn many places in in taipei you can't make right or left turns you have to do these these you know loops 
And then there's one-way streets, Renai, and uh, various other ones and things you have to you figure out. So I don't think the Kaohsiung uh, system is more complicated than driving in any other city would be. So for the most part, this really is just our incredibly bad habit of not really caring uh, much about rules and not having them enforced. So we're seeing the consequences of that. One of the accidents involved a drunk driver, so that uh, possibly doesn't count. But the rest of them are just, um, when I see them, I, I find it hard to understand how that person managed to do that because it's just so clear. And it's, uh, for the most part, I haven't seen one that happened at night. They're, they're mostly happening in the daytime. So if it were at night, there was one idea where they could put like a, a, a visible laser across the, the, the intersection, for example. Um, and Kaohsiung says that it is the tech city of the future, the new uh, Asia hub for, you know, the Internet of Things and all of that. So this will be an interesting challenge for them to develop perhaps some tech that will lead to fewer of these sort of instances. But in general, I would probably blame the culture of traffic lawlessness more than anything else. Yeah, and this takes place at a time in which there's increasing discussion of traffic safety in Taiwan because exactly. of how that will affect international perceptions of Taiwan. Uh, so it does seem like the case. I don't drive, and I am not familiar with Kaohsiung's traffic situation, but it is the case. I mean, there are these traffic issues across all of Taiwan, and, and so accidents do occur, and how do, what solution there is. I mean, I think the government likes to throw out big tech solutions sometimes, but I often think it's really much simpler than that. Of course, Brian, in the north, there's the Danchway light rail. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, of course, the, the, the Ankung light rail is going to open soon, at the end of this year or early next year. So then, But I don't recall hearing so much about any accidents that happened in the Danshui light rail. Yeah, that's right. But I think I'm more concerned about, for example, when there's a truck that will slide off a slope and then into a train that's going out of a tunnel, for example. I mean, those kind of things happen. That's, that's what I'm more concerned about, I think, Anything, as has happened. I mean, how long did it take people to get used to the light rail there, Michael? It so we've we've had this uh, system open in stages, and the first stage was the tram. The tram followed an old uh, line that was used uh, way back, you know, when they were shipping sugarcane from Pingdong to the port. So it really wasn't uh, a big deal because it followed these tracks that were right along the water, and very few intersections were passed through. Then we started getting up to the section near the art museum, and that became a little bit more complicated because we are starting to get into the city. And now we've made it all the way to the intersection of Boai Road, uh, a very big intersection in Kaohsiung. And it's going to continue now and go through Dashren Road in a circle because it is a circular line. And it, uh, it, it, it isn't very difficult to understand, but this is the very first time that Kaohsiung has ever had a train that runs uh, on the, the same road as cars. And there, there, there's a barrier between the traffic and the, the tram itself. So to drive onto the tracks, which people have actually done on several occasions, you have to actually drive kind of deliberate somehow. You have to get onto this track. And I, I, like I said, I, I don't see how they are doing this. It, to, to me, it, it does seem to boil down to just a, a, a general disregard for traffic safety and rules in general. And if more people just paid attention, I don't think we'd be having these issues.
And before we go this week, there's been much ado in the local media here in recent weeks about big-name former NBA players playing in Taiwan's pro basketball leagues, those being the Plus League and the T1 League. Now, the fixations all began after the Taoyuan Leopards signed Dwight Howard and other people who have been linked with Taiwan in recent weeks called Carmelo Anthony and DeMarcus Cousins. Now, I spoke with T1 League English language colour commentator Matt Bronsill about the sudden move moves to sign former NBA players, what it means for the local pro basketball scene, and of course, one Mr. Jeremy Lin. So Matt, the fixation with former NBA players, and what do you think they can bring to the teams here in both the short and long terms, the latter of course being heavily dependent on whether they stick around? Well, I think they bring a lot. Uh, Short term, there's uh, definitely new energy to the team. The players are playing a lot harder on the field when uh, Dwight Howard's there than they were before. They bring a level of experience. His first game against DEA, they were losing in the first half. He went to the locker room. He gave them a speech. They say that the speech was mostly given by Dwight Howard as the coach. They came back with a whole new energy and ended up winning the game in overtime for like about 20-point deficit. Long-term, both T1 and D-Leagues focus on team localization, which means... They're focused on making sure their team is noticed in the area they're in, basically. So a player like Dwight Howard helps build the team identity, um, helps retain his fans in the long term, and it also helps on a broader scale. Uh, for example, he raised over $3 million for charities on December 8th, which is his birthday, at an auction. And finally, it brings a lot of exposure to Taiwan basketball. This has been an international news. Shaq has even commented on it, uh, not too favorably. Dwight's response to him was priceless and classy, and it was great. But Dwight Howard being here has been talked about by basically anyone who's a basketball fan, and that's also great for Taiwan basketball. And do you think some of the teams should be looking at former NBA coaching staff as well as players? I think they should, but you you brought up a good point in the last question. A lot of this is short-term versus long-term. The business is cyclical. Basically, you get more dedicated fans, that gets more interest, then you can get more sponsors, that means more money, that means you can advertise more, that means more fans will start coming, you can put out a better product. And so one aspect of it is having the best team, and the team has to decide whether an NBA coach would be a good fit for them um, and whether it would be worth the money. You know, a short-term, a star player is more noticeable. I assume, Gavin, you're, you're not as big of a basketball fan as you are maybe other sports, but if I mention the name Michael Jordan, I assume you would know who he is. I think everybody knows Michael uh, Jordan, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, if I said Doug Collins or Phil Jackson, uh, NBA fans would know if they were the coaches for Michael Jordan, but it wouldn't have such a pop. So you've got the immediate pop of Dwight Howard or other NBA players that are you know, big, big players that have been talked about coming over, and that would help in the short term. Long term, I mean, it may help as far as getting a better team and everything like that, but we do already have amazing coaches here who have a lot of international experience. So it basically comes down to what the team thinks is the best thing. I I think we've got excellent coaches right now in the P League and the T1 League. And I can't think of a reason necessarily to bring one over, but if they think the coach is right for them, then great. And what about other foreign leagues that are worth looking at for former players? I mean, obviously, they're looking at the NBA, but are there, obviously, Euro- there's European leagues. Are they looking at European leagues to import players from? Oh, yeah, definitely. There are a lot of uh, players from the Euro League that are playing right now. Something that I think should get a little more attention are the Filipino leagues. Philippines is known for basketball. It'd be great to bring some people over from that. You also have the international leagues here in Asia, I should say, 
like the ABL, which that would be a huge thing to look at as well. And, of course, there's the impact of Taiwanese players. I mean, the, the sport is growing here. So we should also make sure we're looking at our own players to see if they're at that caliber as well. Do you think there's some concern that these teams could put their, their own domestic players at the back and just put the foreign imports at the forefront? Well, they kind of do that now, <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, the reality is, is the rules are set up to where, well, both leagues, only two import players can play on the court at the same time. And so the focus when like the Dreamers were in the ABL and the Braves were in the ABL, the ABL had rules where three import players could play. And that definitely put the import players at the forefront. Um, when the P League started, they changed those rules and made the made it so they could have less import players playing at the same time, so that the Taiwanese players got more playing time. So I think that's another reason both leagues are popular here in Taiwan. Is it really does try to focus more on the Taiwanese players instead of just the foreign players coming in. And what, of course, does playing in Taiwan offer these foreign imports? Well, Taiwan is competitive. Before COVID-19, we were pretty big in the ABL. We have a great national team. So I think the competitive level is really good here. It also offers a lot of exposure now. Uh, Taiwanese basketball is growing really quickly. A lot of my students, when I first came here in 2006, a lot of them really liked baseball and watched baseball. Now everyone's talking about basketball, and baseball's kind of taken a back burner. It has a strong, loyal fan base. You know, uh, Dwight Howard even chose, said he chose Taiwan because of its fan base. In a November press conference, he mentioned the first two times he came to Taiwan, the fans treated him so well that he, quote, was just like, man, I can't wait to come back. So I, I think it offers a lot of exposure in the basketball world, and it, it's a great jumping point to other leagues if they choose to leave. And what about, of course, one Mr. Jeremy Lin? I mean, there's been lots of speculation in the social media and in the mainstream media <laughs> that he could choose to come to play here. So you're the one person in basketball you could ask this question to, and that's him. <laughs> um, he's the only one who's going to know. You know, he's playing for the Long Lions in China right now. His brother plays here, actually. Joseph Lin plays here. He plays for the New Taipei Kings in the Peace League. He could play as a local player also since he's part so he wouldn't need, like, they could count him as a local player. And, you know, the only person who knows who's coming is the player and the teams. You know, a lot of times in basketball, these offers are made, and sometimes they aren't. And <laughs> the rumors begin flying around, and it takes over, and then people get excited, and then they either come or they don't come. And oftentimes, the offer is made, the offer is accepted, but they can't say anything about it because they're playing for another team. So there were rumors a, a few weeks ago about him coming to join the uh, Steelers in Gaoshan, but the uh, Steelers immediately put out a release saying he wasn't coming. I think Jeremy Lin says the same thing. And so maybe he's coming, and I can't say it yet. Maybe he's not coming. <laughs> we won't know until the season goes on. But do you think there's more in the China League to keep him there and less in the Taiwan League to entice him to come here? That is possible as well. I mean, it's... it's it, does come down to money, with, especially with a lot of these star players. I know a lot of players, they like to jump over to the China League just because a lot of the teams offer a lot more money because China's a lot bigger. So it be a money thing. He may want to come here, but he's looking at the money and going, ah, the money's better over there. That was me in conversation with T1 League English language colour commentator Matt Bronsill. And that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Gaoshung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICR2 with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our preview shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.